This is a Propaganda Report special report. I'm Monica Perez. And I'm Brad Binkley. Stacey Abrams. Is she what she wants us to think she is? Is she a created person, as we use the term? Who is she? Where'd she come from? Where's she going? Let's start talking about the real Stacey Abrams. Binkley, you and I have been covering this for a long time. She has, I think, emerged in many ways as we anticipated. I think we knew she was going to lose the governorship and refuse to run for Senate, that she would have her eye on the presidency or the vice presidency. I think we've even seen signs that maybe someday she wants to be kind of president of the world. I don't know. Yeah, I think she definitely has her ambitions set high. And I feel like when you hear her stories, when you hear the legacy she sets up, when you hear her, the lessons she wants you to learn from her life experience, and even the answers that her or her campaign give, when you challenge the veracity of some of these claims, it's clear she wants to make a certain impression of where where she's from. And some of her bio supports it at least on the surface. But as you dig deeper, I think a very different picture emerges. So let me just lay out for people, maybe a lot of people probably don't know, just the basic biographical info on her. She was born in Madison, Wisconsin. She lived there for uh, a little bit, but she spent her elementary school years in Mississippi, her high school years in Atlanta. She went to what she calls Avondale High School, but you've mentioned that she actually was in a special program or a special school there. Yeah, she had to audition to get into that school. It's the same school that Donald Glover, the actor, went to. He's much younger than her, but this is a school that is it's pretty Danny elite. Glover? No. No, Donald Glover. I don't Glover. know Donald Glover. The, yeah, Danny Glover's a lot older. Dan- Donald Glover's an actor and musician. A lot of people, he's, he's pretty popular. So this school is, you have to audition to get into it. And she went into this school as an actor to begin with before she got into politics. Very interesting. And I think I've seen signs of where she brings that to the fore. And I even remember once she said that she had majored in physics for a while there. And I wondered if she was meant to be a face job in the science front. I don't know. But during her time there, she went to a program. And this is where I think is really the tell of kind of where she was headed. She says that this is when she laid out her life plan, which she revises over time, but she really got a clear picture of a a multi-decade life plan when she was at an extremely elite program in 1990 as a rising senior. It was called the Telluride Program, and it was an experience for high school juniors that it claims offers challenges and rewards rarely encountered in secondary school or even college. These people don't have to apply for financial aid, and they are expected to go out in the world and really dominate, that they are they are expected to make a real difference in the world, to go on to great things, which she did as far as any kind of that kind of measure would go. She went to Spelman College, where we're going to get into some of the activities she engaged in, went to Yale Law School, which is the most prestigious law school, hardest to get into probably in the entire world. It's tiny. And uh, also during that time, she got a public affairs master's at LBJ School in 1998. That's at UT in Austin. So she went straight to law school and this LBJ school out of college. And by 1999, she had already racked up quite a resume. But she even has prestigious, well-accomplished sisters. One's a judge who was appointed by Obama. One worked at the CDC and is now helping her at the fair fight. And her parents are both masters in, or maybe even doctors, I don't know, in uh, who went to the Divinity School in Emory, which was what brought her to Atlanta. Yeah, they went to study theology, and her mom had already had a graduate degree, so I think I believe this was her mom's third degree. But the way she presents herself, for me, if you ever look at any any kind of demographics uh, questionnaire that you saw, fill out, it'll say, what was your educational achievement or your parents' educational achievement? And it breaks it out pretty clearly into never finished high school, 
uh, finished high school, some college, finished college, and then postgraduate education is this rarefied air at the bottom of the list that not a lot of people get to check off. I can check it off for myself, but I couldn't even check off some college for either of my parents. So the reason they ask for that stuff is they want to know how much how much of a head start you got, what they can expect from you, um, what your education level is. And for me, someone who has both parents with graduate work, that's that puts you in a, in a totally different echelon. And so some of her backstory, some of her legacy kind of seems a little tortured. This idea, I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm saying by I- isolating stories such as my dad used to walk home in the rain with no coat, it it develops an impression that may be not true because or may be a false impression. She is she was born in the 70s. So this was after the civil rights and her parents were very well connected, if I understand correctly, in the civil rights movement. So if she's remembering these things about her parents, it was after they kind of made the scene. So there's probably more to the story than we know. What is some of the backstory there? About her parents? Yeah, I was just thinking like the the dad must have, those people were pretty well connected. They were the activists in the yeah. civil rights movement and they were part of a group that ultimately became the Black Panthers. And the name slips my mind right now of what that group was. But the group, they were involved in a lot of similar activities as Black Panthers. And they worked with John Lewis, ran around in that circle. Jesse Smollett's parents ran around in some of the same circles as they did. So from a young age, they were doing performative acts, the children were, because their parents were teaching them how to do it. There's the story of Stacey Abrams being sent in to go pick up her reward for uh, an essay that she won. And she tells a story about going in and she was in fifth grade at the time and that the woman wouldn't give her her reward because she didn't believe that she could have won it, which when you kind of step back and look at the story is Stacy says that they asked her for an ID- identification. And of course, she's in fifth grade. She doesn't have an identification. And if you're working at a place like this and your responsibility responsibility is to give away an award, the expectation is that the parents are going to come in there. You can verify who it is and you can give the reward to them. So it didn't necessarily it. It was skewed definitely in a direction that the way Stacy tells a story to fit the narrative that she wants to tell, but it might not necessarily have been what actually happened. But her dad sending her in there to do that was kind of, I see it as a training. You're going to train in some of this activism. Yeah, it was definitely an unusual choice, especially since she was going in there to get money. It was a monetary yeah. reward award. So that's something that you're, you are going to want to control that. There would be a motive for people who just kind of were there when the award was given out to act like you're that person, maybe get a few bucks easy. And the dad, I think it would be I would go with my kids and just to that. And I just to go back to the Black Panthers, they were infiltrated by the FBI. They were armed by an agent of the U.S. government, an informant or a connection. So there could be deeper. This leads to what I think where she really is, is is more of a deep state actor that is not uncommon for activists. Yeah, Absolutely. And then as she moved up, she went to high school. And was she the valedictorian? Is that how she was invited to the governor's mansion? She was. So she was invited to the governor's mansion as valedictorian. And she was number one on the list. Her name says A A for Abrams, AB. She was the first person on the list. She claims that as she got, she, that they had to take a city bus to this event and that they the people at the gate of the governor's mansion did not believe that she could be the valedictorian of a high school in Georgia and come off a city bus. And just on the face of it, that is very hard to believe. And then Zell Miller, who was the governor at the time, his office came to his defense as he lay dying and the story came out. And I and I think her campaign kind of backed off a little bit and said, well, you know, let's not quibble about the facts. It just represents a, a deeper truth that we are trying to highlight here. And that's Exactly what Stacey Abrams echoed when she said that you tell these stories when you're organizing, you tell these stories that come from a kernel of truth. And that kernel of truth is used to push the issue that you're trying to push. She's 
openly ad- admitted this in some of the uh, talks that she's given because she does. She trains people in how to do activism. She is an activist and she is a trainer. And I feel like her parents did that, too, helped her learn that way. And even some of the there was one thing that you brought up in Atlanta during the time that she was running for governor that the New York Times picked up and said it just emerged on social media. That's not true. You brought it to our show on the radio, but that she you actually heard her mother talking about an incident that was not in the public sphere right now. At, when her mother was given a sermon, you found the sermon. Tell that story. I found a sermon on an obscure website. And during the sermon, her mom was talking about how her daughter had burned that flag on the steps of the Capitol. And then she kind of laughed and said, I don't think they know about all that. And I was like, whoa. And so I did some research in, into the archives, the AJC archives. You can look in the AJC archives, type in Stacey Abrams, do a search range between 90 and 93 or something like that. You'll see her names pop up a number of times. And I found that she did lead a group. She actually formed this group at Spelman. This group was an activist group and it was a pretty radical activist group. And they marched on the Capitol and they burned the flag of Georgia. And the argument was that they were burning it to get rid of the Confederate symbol on the flag. But at the time, when I found this, I knew that that story, they were trying to stop the Confederate flag or or symbol from being on the flag to get it removed. That, That couldn't be true because if that were the case, then this would be the central focus of her campaign. It wouldn't be buried. And I know it was buried because I sat on it for like three weeks because we didn't have a show for a few weeks and nobody talked about it until we talked about it. Then the next day, everybody was talking about it. And what was going on at that time is there was already a bipartisan effort going on. Governor Zell Miller, the black police chief of Atlanta, Democrats, Republicans were working together and they were making progress. It was considered historic at the time to get that Confederate symbol removed from the flag. So they were actually moving forward with something until Stacey Abrams group came in and started radicalizing this idea, which led to calls from the governor, pleads please stop. Please stop doing this. You're going to sabotage the effort. You're going to you're going to draw out radicals from the right. And he actually referred to her group as a radical group. And ultimately, the effort failed and the governor put blame on her group as well as far right groups for sabotaging the effort to take the, the symbol off the flag. And she, just to be clear, they burned this flag, which was the the official flag of the state of Georgia on the Capitol steps. Yeah. So this not only, I think, the reaction not only was that you were going to draw radicals from the other side, but that moderate people on the right, which is what most of the people would be in Georgia at that time, moderate people on the right would be alarmed by this as if it's a radical thing. You're capitulating to radicals. Was this, do you remember the year? Was this before or after the Rodney King riots? I believe this that, was 92 or 93. That's the Rodney King riots were 92. So this was all when she was at Spelman. Yeah. And if it was after, then it would really, especially since she was instrumental in some of the activity around the Rodney King stuff that that really scared people. Yeah, she organized some marches at the Rodney King during the Rodney King riots. She's never said that they led to any violence or anything. When you look at the articles back then and you look at the groups that she was organizing and that she was leading, come to your own conclusion. I know what I believe about it. I know what she Hmm. says and the two don't line up in my opinion. And then she went on to the most prestigious law school in the world. Not it was before. the only one I didn't get into. I got into Harvard and Stanford, and I did not get into the Yale one. It, it's just so hard to get into. She Before she went there, she, from her organizing at Spelman and all the other activist activities, she ended up getting a job for the mayor of Atlanta at the time, I believe. And then she also ended up speaking at the 30th anniversary of the Million Man March. And if you go back and watch that speech and, and you listen to the words only, you think you're listening to Greta Thunberg. What do you mean? She says the same stuff. Give the youth the power. The youth should be in charge. The young people need to lead. That's very interesting. There's another another girl where you can find it's almost identical language with Greta. It certainly is 
I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, you know, handbook somewhere, a memo somewhere that has those, those bullet points highlighted. So that's, that's kind of her backstory. And she likes to use those experiences, those moments as the touchstone for kind of where she came from, where her emotions lie, what her activism has been. But for me, and I I don't want to move on until you've kind of fleshed all that out to the extent you want to. But for me, this is all, this is all part of an image, a very carefully crafted image. I call this kind of person, what I think she is a created person where it kind of starts in high school that they, they craft what this person is going to present to the world. And sometimes they change course. I think AOC is one of those people, but they were going to have her be a super upright person and then they decided to make her kind of a hard scrabble person but in this case the internships there is such a laundry list of internships that stacy was involved in that are clearly of a globalist nature and a kind of a specific globalist nature i want to actually go through them and highlight what each one represents some of them fold into institutions that you're well aware of and what their goals are but what else about her backstory before we move on I think we've led up to the internship portion pretty well. Yeah. So, yeah, because this is where we are timeline wise. So she graduated from Yale in 99. Some of the internships have a timestamp on them. Some of them don't. So the one that that and this bio is not plastered all over every place. I I saw it emerge a little bit some references to it recently because they want to say they want to counter the argument it seems like that she is totally unqualified to be vice president because she hasn't had any real leadership position especially in politics. And so some people have said how accomplished she is because of these internships which are granted they are granted to you. This is not where she built a business worth X, Y, and Z without any aid from government funding or or regulatory privileges or anything like that. So let's just start taking them off and you can chime in. The first thing is she is a lifetime member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Yeah. So I'm not, you know. She got <laughs> that at a young age, too. Yes, she started out with the term membership, I think it was. And I think Heidi Cruz had something like that. But then her defense later was that she's not a term, that she's not a lifetime member. She did not graduate on to being a permanent member of the Council of Foreign Relations. But this gives you access to people and power and influence and also brings you under the influence of, if you want to say there's a they, a cabal, a world thing. It's what Hillary Clinton herself called the mothership. The mothership of when yeah. she was secretary of state and yeah. she wanted she said it's i'm so glad you opened an office in dc because i don't i get sick of going to new york to the mothership to get my marching order something like that that's a paraphrase but it's pretty close to what she actually said and that's this that's this thing that is kind of number one on stacy abrams list of institutional affiliations now that Council of Foreign Relations is a sister or a daughter of the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the Chatham House, which you know so much about. And she she goes there. She does her speeches there. She talks to people there. She's the only politician that I've seen be a speaker at every one of these major think tanks in such a short period of time. And so frequently she's like a. A, a guest speaker that they bring in to talk about, I guess, the issues of the day, which she's what she's been talking about is voter suppression. All right. That's her. That's her. That's her. What her goal in life and raison d'etre is going to be, I think, in the here and now. And then it might branch off to where she's the leader of the opposition after if there's a Democrat loss or if she's not the VP or something like that. And then or it could be a stepping stone to if she does get the VP spot and and is in that position, then Trump does lose. So I don't have a date on this, but these things, I think, all kind of happened before she entered the Georgia state Senate, I think it was in 2007. These these internships were all before that, because this is from her bio for that. But she was a British American Project fellow, 
which is a it it used to be called a British American Project for Successor Generations Fellow. It's a Reagan era organization. Uh, it is considered a neoconservative slash neoliberal networking machine. So those, believe it or not, are kind of similar concepts, neoconservative, neoliberal. I think they kind of call it neoliberal in Europe where you or neo-feudalist even. It's this idea of free markets and libertarianism, liberal, as if that's a that is always going to be captured by the financial powers, the big banks as as. A libertarian, I can tell you that is not what real free markets would be. Mom and pop entrepreneurship add to a, le a leveling of the playing field. This is about that corpo governmental continuum, in my opinion. But that's what this was supposed to be. This is she is a fellow. It was supposed to connect American and UK up and comers who are going to be significant political actors in the next couple of decades. And it was founded by Nick Butler, a Chatham House fellow. Ronald Reagan, Rupert Murdoch, and what's described in the in the bio, the description of this by a not so friendly source, a far right oil baron, Howard Pugh. And I guess maybe that's Pew Research. I'm not sure. I didn't look him up. But according to John Pilger, who's a pretty well known Australian journalist, he said uh, that it was I guess Bill Clinton had some interaction with this British American project and Pilger said he attacked it as an example of Atlanticist Freemasonry and asserted that uh, many members are journalists, the essential foot soldiers in any network devoted to power and propaganda. So the British American project is considered a, uh, a propaganda machine for neoconservative and neoliberal cross-Atlantic powers and cooperation and it targets young people it's for the successor generations so she also is a next was a next generation fellow of the american assembly at columbia university on u.s global policy and the future of international institutions and this is something that basically churns out assistant secretaries of defense. And in their description or in one of the, the projects they're working on, they foster smart power, practical goals for the exercise of power, a context sensitive approach, approach to alliance building, cultural influence and military force in foreign policy. I mean, I think that bears reflecting alliance building, cultural influence and military force. They're the role in foreign policy, this expanded role in foreign policy. She was trained in this. This is an internship of hers. She's been trained. Yeah, she's highly trained and highly skilled at what she does. That's yes. definitely apparent. And it, and it goes on. And I, I don't want to belabor it, but it, I think it's really interesting that the i mean internships take time she's been involved in every one of these things and they all kind of point in the same direction if you ask me and she was an american marshall memorial fellow and the marshall that's the the marshall fund which is designed to establish transatlantic engagement among up-and-coming elites in america and europe from business government and civil society it goes way back to the 50s well it goes way back to world war ii in trying to influence the the European development in the light of post-war era. And that connects with, she was twice a Salzburg seminar fellow. One for, and I'll tell you what that is, one for U.S. East Asian relations, that was in 2002, and one for youth and civic engagement, that was in 2000. It is a... Uh, it, it, it is an independent nonprofit organization founded in 1947 to challenge current and future leaders to shape a better world. Our multi-year program series, series aimed to bridge divides, expand collaboration, and transform systems. They want creative, just, and sustainable change. When you want to change, when you transform, you want to direct that, it's for a reason. They call it the Marshall Plan of the Mind. But the backstory on it is kind of interesting. I looked up this guy, Clemens Heller. Clemens Heller, who founded it. He was the son of Sigmund Freud's publisher. So he was, this was in Austria. He was there at whatever Sigmund Freud was up to, which I don't think just sprang from his mind independently. This guy was in there at the ground floor and he went on to shape the mind of the European American alliance, the youth, the, the mindset. And in the beginning on the, at the very first one in 1947, they came out and they said the, 
the Matthiasen who gave the first speech said, we're not here to as emissaries of imperial America. But he quickly lost credibility that day because it was discovered that U.S. Army intelligence had infiltrated that first seminar. So I don't know if it infiltrated it or set it up. I really don't know. Yeah. But it, it got past that. And it went on to this day where it continues to try to shape the mind. And then there are just a couple of other ones. Um, she did a, an American Council of Young Political Leaders Fellowship, which was the Department of State uh, that was open to college juniors and seniors who can exhibit discretion and decorum. And uh, it was it is, again, something for cultural affairs and education and outreach program. Similarly, this one I always found fascinating. She was a UCOS fellow for U.S.-Russian relations. That's a Kissinger and Rothschild baby UCOS that the guy who ran UCOS oil went up in flames as a tax fraud or whatever, enemy of Putin. I don't know. But they had some pretty sketchy outreach programs in in Russia to teach the youth about democracy, obviously from an American or an English perspective. So a Russian, a Russian focused program. Yes. And the Salzburg thing also said that during the Cold War, they were one of the only institutions that could bring Russia and the U.S. together, that they were open to both sides of that divide, which is real, real deep state, you know, inside, above and beyond the Cold War. It's really, really deep state. And then she had two other ones I couldn't find any information on. The Council of Italy fellow, which I know, I believe that the Council of Rome is a is a super deep like CFR. The Club of thing. Rome? Club of Rome, yeah, this is not that. This is the Council of Italy. I could not find information that was for sure this thing. And then the Aspen Rodell Fellow and the Aspen Institute is obviously, or if anybody knows about it, it is a globalist and I would say deep state kind of thing. But these these guys, when you see Event 201, when you see what's happening with the coronavirus and the policies that are coming down in lockstep, you look at the organizations that anticipate it and are exploiting it. It's everything from the World Economic Forum to the uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates, Johns Hopkins, all these institutions. Johns Hopkins is kind of an incubator for these created persons, in my opinion. All these things, if you ask who is they, what are what is that globalist continuum? These are the names. And she's she's been plugged into them since Yale Law School, which is probably ground zero for it all anyway. Yeah, since at least Yale Law School and something that to me adds further to this whole myth, this this backstory of hers is that she has an alias. She actually has a functioning alias, Selena Montgomery, that she writes romance novels under the pen name of. And you know my theory about that. What? I have had this theory, and I never had it proven or anything, but I always had this theory. I couldn't understand why Obama was so rich. This was before any speaking tours or anything. He was still in office, so, so rich, and it was from selling books. And I just thought, eventually, don't book sales kind of dry out? Don't you eventually not make a million bucks a year or whatever it is? And I, I speculated that maybe friends of these politicians buy an unusual number of the books in order to show their um, support of that person's work. And I never... and. Uh, I was bombarded with tweets when the Baltimore mayor, I think her name was Pew, was, I think, arrested or charged with writing books, children's books that were bought en masse from a hospital over which she had control or influence of the policy between the hospital and the city that she was supposedly running. So I'm always suspicious when I see somebody has a an income flow and has no real source of income outside of politics. And then has a successful books. Yeah, I was pretty taken aback when I saw that story as well. It made me think of you because you had talked about that for a while. I find it really interesting with her. She was on Seth Meyers show and she was talking about her pen name, Selena Montgomery. And I, I keep wanting to say Selena Gomez. Cause yeah, actress, me too. Which is definitely two different people. Yes. Animals. But she was talking about the types of characters that she writes in her latest novel. And she told Seth Meyers that she likes to write characters that she thinks she would like to be if she had taken another path in life. 
And the novel they were talking about specifically, the character in that novel was a spy. Do you remember the name of it? No. It, it probably isn't the one. I bought one and I tried to read it. I think it was called like Hidden Sins. I don't and think it was, it was about, that one. I believe it was about a preacher's daughter who was uh, involved in some illicit romance. She's, she's, I couldn't get through it, though. Yeah, they're I'm saucy. I'm not a romance reader. Those books saucy? are saucy. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. I just found it interesting that they were talking about a character that's a spy, and she's telling Seth Meyers, I write characters that I think I would enjoy being if I were in another profession. Oh, that is interesting, because Yale is supposedly the hotbed of CIA recruiting. Yeah. That, that's my favorite line on that, is that Anderson Cooper only had two jobs before he became a reporter and they were both with the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever told he was on Howard Stern and Howard Stern didn't ask him about it. I'm like, hmm, really? It's is that the dog that doesn't bark? Yeah. So, yeah, that, I think that's interesting. And I wonder, I mean, I don't know. It's not worth speculating. But as far as her ability to garner income, her so this is what she did up to let's say 2002 is the latest number i have for the year where she was involved in some of these programs at no point do i have information about her having a job before this time and i don't know exactly when that stuff all ended that's a lot of internships i just don't know how long it took she entered the georgia house it wasn't senate i said it was the state senate she was the minority leader in the House for 10 years from 2007 to 2017. And that this was her bio then. And a bio around that time while she was in the House, and I think this is from a document I was reading in 2007, that was from 2007. So I guess she had done all these things leading up to that. And I look at this, this is some internships and some positions on boards. I wonder if they had stipends attached to them. Uh, some of it, she ran a company or started a company. I find her the that she did so much in the eight years between graduating from Yale and the LBJ school. Let me just read off some of the things that were in that bio. And you tell me if if she is not the most accomplished person whoever walked the face of the earth. She had, uh, she was a partner and COO of Insomnia Group, founder and executive director of Third Sector Development. So this is all from an 07 document. 2004, class of leadership of Georgia. 2004, class of leadership of Atlanta. 2005, class of regional leadership institute. So I looked up those three things and they're kind of networking and they train politicians to how to get things done. And it's, it's, it's not just prestigious. It's not so much that it's on your resume. I think it's really gets you plugged in. You're one of them. That's maybe where you get the secret handshake. I don't know. I'm just trying to understand from what I'm reading. Uh, the She is a board of trust. This is all in an 07 document. Board of trustees of the St. Joseph's Health System. Board of directors for Literacy Action. Board of visitors for Emory University. Oh, by the way, she also, quote, spent a few years... She says, as a tax attorney, but she was focused on tax-exempt organizations and healthcare. Yeah. And I just wonder if she was really, she acts like she had her sleeves rolled up and she was doing tax law, which I just don't think you can parachute into and dabble. I've I've worked at beginner level positions kind of like that. And I think it might be overblown to suggest that she's a tax attorney. I don't know. I mean, I can't get enough details on this to really assess it. Uh, all it is is that it's so much packed into such a short amount of time. She was on the advisory board of the Women's Legacy for the United Way of Metropolitan Atlanta, the uh, Brannon Towers of Wesley Woods, and HSTAT. I don't even know what that is. But anyway, she was a chair chairman of the board for Hands-On Atlanta. She was on the board of trustees for the Atlanta Girls' School. This is all from the 2007 bio. Co-founder, SVP, and... Uh, chief accounting officer, I guess, of the Now Account Network Corporation. She was co-founder of Nourish Inc. She owns SageWorks. And I, I, I wrote, this This is my little note to myself. The list goes on and I haven't even listed all the ass-kissing gratuitous rewards she's received for doing basically nothing. So she gets an award for every, you know, just walking down the street, best walking down best the street way, uh... today. <laughs> she was also a lawyer for the city of Atlanta in 2005. Really? Oh, was that part of that thing that grew out of her Spellman connection? 
Remember, she did get some, we were talking about it earlier, she did get some some role. Yeah, no, she wasn't a lawyer. That was way early. Yeah. What she did in 2005, which is interesting because it connects to 2018 when she ran, is she wrote a law that at the time that when it was passed, that civil rights group said was criminalizing poverty and was anti-black. That's what civil rights groups were were blasting this law as. The law was later used as the basis of an undercover operation where a bunch of agents went undercover wearing Hawaiian shirts, pretending to be tourists, and then they got off MARTA buses because this law was targeting panhandling. It was anti-panhandling law. And as soon as people came up asking for money, they arrested them. They're pretending to be tourists, so they, they arrest them, and then they end up going into jail. $1,000 fine to get out, so they end up stuck in this jail pipeline because they can't get out of it. That is so uncool. Fast forward to 2018, part of her platform running for governor is that she's going to decri- decriminalize poverty, which is the <laughs> exact opposite. You know, I look at these, these laws. Ever since I saw that food stamps was in the ag bill, so it's a subsidy for agriculture, and I feel that way of Obamacare as a subsidy to the healthcare industry. I look at laws like that, and I wonder if it's just they had some, uh, they wanted to justify building more jails or something that they they were just trying to generate business for whatever, juice the budget or something like that. I just I always have a suspicion about laws like that, that like almost everything is meant to line somebody's pockets at this point. You know, that's interesting because there was I'll have to find the name of this later and put it in the notes. But there was a center that opened up around that time in Atlanta that was for homeless people who had gotten in trouble with the law. And I have any and she was, I think, maybe indirectly associated with this. I think there she might... She was probably chairman of the board because she seems like she was chairman of the board of everything in Atlanta during that year. You could be right about that. That could have been what fed that what fed the filled up the, the beds in that new center and then that was she built. Could, I mean, we're just speculating now, but it, it, that kind of thing I've often seen. It's that classic where the government creates a problem and then steps in to fix it. It's that you create this Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with the World Economic Forum and Johns Hopkins and the World Health Organization anticipated this event 201. They were ready for a pandemic like this. They were ready with the policies. The policies are devastating, but still in some circles, these guys and their cronies are emerging as the heroes, as the saviors, solving a problem that they may, I think they contributed to. Yeah. And I think it is interesting as a as a just for the overall idea of where she comes from, who she is, how accomplished her family is and herself and why that isn't and hasn't been. It may change now, but why that hasn't. It's kind of like AOC. Sometimes she's she acts really smart and you're supposed to be a racist or um, prejudiced or anti-misogynist to call her stupid because look how smart she is. But then on the other hand, she does these weird videos where she's making mouth noises and and tells people that she's this accidental politician, that she was a waitress and her brother put her hat in the ring, even though she had done a TED talk. She was an intern for Ted Kennedy when she was still in college. She had one of these high school experiences yeah. where they were creating her. These things, they, they, they talk out of both sides of their mouth. Right. She is the most arguably... You know, it could be her versus Stacey Abrams. Arguably, AOC is the most accomplished 20-year-old you've ever seen. Her resume at the age of 20 is unbelievable. I don't even know if she's 30 yet, but yeah. She's, I think she's she might have so turned far. 30 recently. But at age 20, that she could get an interview with any Fortune 500 company probably on the planet. But yet, fast forward to 2018 or whenever, and she's just a bartender. Suddenly, all of her resume yeah. is forgotten. So they, I think that they try to just swap out these people. It's called sheep dipping, I think. It's where you change somebody's legacy, I believe. But it's a tell that Stacy's sisters are similarly accomplished in that her sister, Andrea, is a PhD and a professor of cultural anthropology. Her sister, Leslie, also went to Yale Law School. She was a Brown undergrad. She's a district district judge appointed by Obama. The first African-American her, appointed. The first African-American district judge? Yeah. Think so? Okay. Uh, well, I mean... 
she was know. the first African American appointed in whatever maybe the region she's in, but she was the oh, first. Oh, maybe yeah. Because yeah. Clarence Thomas must have been. I assume he was a judge like that before he got to the Supreme Court. But I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I, my guess is it was groundbreaking. And her sister Audrey uh, was a scientist at the CDC. Then she started to work with Stacy on the voting stuff. Now that's where she is now. But these are people who were well accomplished in their own rights. And for me, I mean, I look at my family. Yeah, I have pretty good resume, but I did drop out of high school. I went to community college. I have brothers and sisters who uh, didn't even make it, <laughs> you know, aren't even alive. So although she does have a brother who's has drug problems, which uh that's no that's no joking matter. But anyway, I feel like to present the hard scrabble side of it as if I know what it's like to beat these odds and I've been fighting my whole life to get ahead of odds that were stacked against me, I would say there's really ultimately the privilege of connections and training and opportunities transcend everything in this society of connections, of government connections, of cabal, of being connected to the cabal, the globalists. I mean, her, her, I, I think she, the fact that she's not bragging about all this stuff, like the, yeah. like the burning the flag, the fact that she's not bragging about all this stuff means that doesn't fit with her image. And this is why when people say. Uh, to that point right there, I want to yeah. go back to the burning yep. the flag. Mm hmm. After we broke this story and it was taken by the New York Times and flipped on its head, the response was, here's what happened. Stacey Abrams saw that there was a racist symbol on the flag, so they marched, they burned the flag, and bam, 10 years later, that symbol was removed, as though she were responsible for it getting removed. If that were true, then it would not have taken us breaking that story. That would have been a central focus of her campaign. That would have been one of her accomplishments because that accomplishment would fall in line perfectly with every other thing they were presenting her as being. So the very fact that that was buried and it only came out because we broke it and then they turned it around shows that they were trying to keep that buried because of the truth of it, which is they sabotage the effort. And they would that probably they probably knew that would have come to light although brian kemp she held her arrows in her quiver against brian kemp who was absolutely corrupt when it came to voting in 2016 or there's absolutely plausible charges that were people citizens attempted to bring against him that she kept in her back pocket and never revealed similarly he did not bring this up although yeah arguably he could have and he could have because he actually used it in his favor during the campaign by saying I was the one who voted for changing the flag. But he only said that after the story broke and she your story broke and they wouldn't give you credit for it because God forbid anyone actually go back and hear what you had to say about it. And then she had to address it and then Kemp addressed it. But he was complicit in my mind in keeping that story secret because it wouldn't everyone would have known. She sent the right. effort back. And to clarify one thing, Abram's sister was the first African-American female judge in Georgia. Right. Wow. That's surprising. I mean, that took long enough. That was under Obama. Federal judge. Yes. under But Obama. still, yeah. I mean, you would think that with a diverse population, you have a diverse judiciary. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like the reason I wanted to do this, the reason I wanted to get this out about kind of the big picture with her is I've seen many, many people say she's a flash in the pan. She's she's a loser. She's a, a has been. She's an also ran yeah. that they dismiss it, that they look at what she does and how she presents herself as being spontaneous or her own gumption or what is she going to do next? And for me, I I it is clear that she was she was crafted. She's been given quite a big personality and role. I feel like she is definitely going to go somewhere with this. We have not heard the last of her and that when she when when stories unfold around her, when she is an actor in one of the news stories, I believe that there's that most, if not all of that stuff is scripted or at least orchestrated, directed, somehow massaged to to fit a script. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that a lot of this has been building, say, a flash in the pan. I'd say she's a long time coming. I'd say they've been working her up to fill this role of the voter suppression issue to be the person championing that for a long time. In 2014, she founded the New Georgia Project, which was funded by George Soros. George Soros has been funding her for a long, long time. And that was the beginning of this. That was activism training. That was voter suppression. That was training people on how to register voters. Same type of stuff that she's doing right now. Just that was kind of the initial stages of it. And then you move forward to 2018. She loses the election. She starts Fair Fight Georgia immediately after losing the election, which is basically just a rebranding of the new Georgia project. Also, her campaign in 2018, not only funded by George Soros, funded by everybody in George Soros's family. I mean, they gave so much money to her. Wasn't and isn't I want to take into that for just a second. Didn't she say something like, well, I remember when she had that Freudian slip that she was on the road to the White House. Uh, I mean, the governor's mansion. But didn't she say something like my job is to lose well? Do you you remember that? She did say that in one of her speeches that. Yes. Yeah. She actually she said that exact thing. Her job is to lose well. And that made me think of the the Saul Alinsky line where he talks about sometimes the purpose is to lose because the idea is the reaction that you get. And by getting that, the the reaction is more of a payoff for you than your action. So that's it can be confusing. But by by losing She's going to get more of what she wants than by winning. And when you look at her career, she's always positioned herself as being the person who's, be, who's been victimized, and she's rose up and overcome that victimization. And this was just another aspect of that. If she were to win the governorship of Georgia, she would not have been able to start Fair Fight Georgia. We would not have this nationwide push for voter suppression right now. We would not be able to say Donald Trump and the Republicans are are cheating right now because Stacey Abrams would have won. So by her losing, it enabled her to facilitate not only this in Georgia, but this voter suppression narrative nationally. Well, I and one of the things you're making me think of one of the, the things that she was involved in the uh, the it's the German Marshall Fund. It's separate from the Salzburg thing, but we were talking about how she was an American Marshall Memorial Fellow, and I wanted to dig into all these different associations and this idea of taking two steps forward and one step back or one step forward and two steps back for bigger picture. It reminds me of just one thing I just pulled out one of their most recent reports about how to before a Corona time. So it's not that about how this Marshall Fund wants to support the liberal order in uh, Europe's strategic interest and that they don't want to be strict. They want to have pragmatic principles. They don't want to be strict about their principles so that their approach is what they call granular. So they can do something like uh, preserve the Iran nuclear deal so that they can be pro-order, even though it's not pro-liberal. And what they mean by liberal is kind of free. And then it says other things such as supporting democratic dissidents may be pro-liberal, but not immediately pro-order. So It says observers can disagree about whether a particular policy will on balance strengthen or weaken the liberal order and global aspirations for the liberal order may not be realistic at present. So they talk about pretty openly in stuff that she has been involved in, how you can take a specific movement or episode and and foster it, foment it, even though it doesn't feel like it's fostering the globalist cause. You, it's about timing. It's about impressions. It's about what ultimately you can feed together. This is a real tell of how they do it. it, it you can say there's conspiracy, no conspiracy. They, this, these are the in, internships, the institutions that get people like Stacey Abrams and other powerful, uh, up and coming politicians on the same page, gives them their marching orders. And then you can read things like foreign affairs quarterly and see on a topic by topic basis, what they're recommending. And you know, you take your marching orders from them because that's the publication of the Council of Foreign Relations, which is of a piece with all of these things. Yeah. And as we said earlier, we've seen Stacy speak at the Brookings Institute, the Chatham House, the CFR. I believe there's a couple of others as well on this circuit, speaking about issues like this, signaling what the issues are, having meetings with all the candidates. And I, I, I really think that what we're going to see 
leading up to the election and after the election is this voter suppression narrative. It's already been determined, even though more Democrats showed out for the primary in Georgia than Republicans. A historic number of Democrats showed out for the primaries this this election cycle. Still, it was not because it, it was in spite of voter suppression. So the issue is always going to exist and it's always going to be used to further this national mo- mobilization and this is my theory on if Trump wins, then the voter suppression narrative and Stacey Abrams as the leader of this resistance is going to emerge. I also think that she does present and foster or clarify the talking points. You played a clip for us once. The Brookings Institution said she said they asked her about how when within our movement, identities clash, they cannot be resolved. How do you deal with that? She yeah gave an answer that the guy didn't like people don't or maybe the guy liked it, but people don't like it. It's similar to with the defund the police or reform the police. She's telling people how to craft that answer. She I think she does direct people to an establishment to something that can stay inside the box, even though she feels like someone very much trying to break the box. I don't think she is. And I think that's part of her role. Absolutely. I I think that I think that you're right on that. I I think that was that the clip where she kind of reframes what Martin Luther King, what his message was? That was the Brookings clip that you played. Yes. Yeah. Somebody, I believe so. Somebody asked her a question during this panel discussion at Brookings about they were talking about identity politics. And she's a major advocate of identity politics. She makes she does not hold back on that. She says, I'm for I'm for identity politics. It works for me. I believe that's an exact quote. Yeah. And. He said, well, what about what Martin Luther King said when you judge a man by the content of his character and not the color of his skin? And she went on a little diatribe about how everybody misunderstood what Martin Luther King said. That's not what Martin Luther King meant. What Martin Luther King meant is this. Martin Luther King loves identity politics. That's the gist of her answer. So she just (laughs) took everything Martin Luther King said and said, you're wrong about him. I know what he meant. You don't. Here's what he really meant. He meant what I believe. And it was really pretty... It was pretty egotistical, in my my opinion, that answer. And it goes right to what, as I've been digging into where her training grounds have been, the Sigmund Freud connection, the do whatever, this pragmatic principles idea, Saul Alinsky, which I don't have a direct line between her and Saul Alinsky. I'm sure she's read that book because she certainly follows the plan of of how to how to work with anything to achieve your goals. Now, I have one quick question. Do you think there's any chance that, I mean, at this point, it's June 22nd, 2020. uh, Biden has not been confirmed by the Democratic National Convention as the candidate, although he has the votes for it, it seems like. it's He has not picked a VP, although Stacey Abrams makes it clear she'd like to be that person. And we just don't know. Trump supposedly is trailing in the polls, but you just never know how much of this is theater and how much of it is real. So what do you think? Is there a chance that she that Biden gets it? She gets it. What do you or do you are you like 80 percent sure you feel like she's going to be the leader of the of the opposition in the wake of a of a shocking and divisive Trump victory? At this point, things have gotten so crazy. It can. It is hard to determine sometimes. Her role is going to be large, whatever it's going to be. I almost think that she might be making a big deal of wanting the vice presidency, knowing that she's not going to get selected. That way she can position herself as being suppressed again as being look i tried to advocate for it and even though i put myself out there and i've done this and this issue i wasn't selected it was it's like once again setting herself up to lose so that she can then use that power to organize as a resistance leader i'm leaning towards her not being picked for it i know before i thought that she was i don't know what's going to happen with biden it's definitely a possibility, but I'm leaning towards her not. I'm leaning her towards her being a leader of the resistance afterwards. It, the one wrinkle I thought of that brings some of that stuff together is if her being her complaints of being suppressed does is the Democrat Party taking a a dive and following that script because by picking the senile old white guy who now has a Republican pack supporting him. Not That's kidding. crazy, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it crazy? Scaramucci. <laughs> Candace Owens wants to be his VP. Wow. So, so 
if the Democrats are taking a dive like that or are flipping the script the way Trump is the populist candidate, the labor candidate, the trade restricting candidate, if if they're flipping, if they're flipping, then then she's probably not the person, although I she's so completely establishment, she'd be the perfect person. She'd be the perfect globalist shepherd for the next administration. She but would. and she might be. So but if the Democrats aren't that far gone yet, they may take her suppression, oppression, repression in Georgia as a an opportunity to vindicate themselves and to give her the hand that she needs to model the behavior of how you right a wrong, how you go forward. That is not the mood I'm feeling from the Democrats. But stuff like this can turn on a dime. I, I, I can see that there is a script being written. I can guess it's like that um that Bandersnatch thing on Black Mirror. I just oh, wonder. Oh, yeah, Choose Your Own Adventure. Yeah, like they yeah. had just a million scenes made and they are ready for any course you yes. pick, but the last scene is always going to be yep. the same. Yeah, they have a lot of alternatives, but you get to that conclusion the same way. If she were to not get chosen and someone like Kamala maybe is chosen and they end up losing, then Stacey Abrams' power will never be greater. She because look, I tried, didn't pick me. Now look what happened, and that to me that is how she maximizes her influence is by not is by advocating for it, then not getting selected, and then the Democrats losing. Because then everything is like I tried. Nobody, and then everybody's going, oh, it's gonna increase the call for Stacey Abrams to have a leadership position if that were to happen. And I want to say one other thing. You were talking about her kind of signaling talking points and the Martin Luther King comments that she made. This is probably six months ago. Actually, it's further than that. Time kind of flies during the corona shutdown. It seems like I say six months ago, and I think I'm talking about like last June, but I realize right. that we've kind it's of missed year. six months. Yeah, it's like a year. Yes, we've been so, robbed of half a life. Right, a yeah. And what I've noticed and on, I've seen people on CNN saying this. I've seen people in activist training. I watch a lot of these activist trainings, these these phone calls. You got to call in and listen. And um, what they've been saying is very similar to what Stacy said is don't tell kids about MLK. It's changing the meaning of MLK or it's saying don't even talk about MLK. It's saying do not tell these protesters these stories about MLK using peaceful protest because it will make them passive and we don't want them passive and they, they're implying they need protesters to be aggressive and get a little violent. They will. Uh, people who want to direct the course of events want to channel energy that derives from an injustice or whatever it is that is galvanizing people will will craft the tactics and the strategy according to what's going to get them where they want. Just like this guy said about supporting democratic dissidents may not seem uh, like it's headed for us, but ultimately it will be. And uh, they even Malcolm X. I think was uh, would not approve of this kind of violence. I just saw an an uh, article about Muhammad Ali's only biological son saying he thought his father would also not approve of any violence. Although they are trying to separate out, and I and I think it's accurate protests from violence, but I think they do want to do want to carry that energy to get the goals they want. That that's interesting, and maybe this is a topic for another show. But I see people on the right separating out violent rioters and protesters people on the left i do not see saying that i see them calling them all protesters and then saying you don't have the right to comment on how these protesters express their anger i feel like that narrative must have morphed a little bit because in the beginning they were yeah in the beginning they were yeah yeah but they've kind of gotten in sync in their messaging over the past few weeks Last week on our show, the Drive Time News Blast, which is 30 minutes a day of up-to-the-minute news from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice that you can find on the Propaganda Report. But I had mentioned that I thought that the dialectic was kind of rising, that that the thesis that was all very kind of pro-protest was going to reach its limits and you were going to start getting kind of a counter narrative, things getting out of control, 
or people, this lawlessness really encroaching on innocent people. I don't know. But I do think that 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 counter argument is rising and we will see how the dialectic unfolds, the thesis, the antithesis. That's what's happening here uh, among the citizenry. But the synthesis, which is always the same, it's always what I call an upsourcing. So it's going to go towards the police being controlled and funded at the federal level. The Floyds have actually asked the UN to get involved. This globalist vortex is something absolutely perfect for Abrams to ride. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And on that note, I think, is there anything else that we missed want people to watch out for? I think that wraps it up pretty well. Just watch out for Stacey. She's working oftentimes in the background. She's always going to speak at some major type of think tank or some activist event. So even when you're not hearing about her, she's always active. Check out her Twitter page. You can see a lot of her activity. She is here to stay. She's not a flash in the pan. She's not going to get a job at a tax attorney's office. She's going to be in our faces for a long time to come. And to quote Thanos, she is inevitable. Wow, that's food for thought. (laughs) On that note, (laughs) till next time. We'll talk to you guys later.